0: Your father who is unseen, and your father who sees what you have done in secret, will reward you. Thank you, Coleman. You can be seated this morning. I got to turn my mic on. Sorry. There we go. Well, good morning, church family. So glad some of you were able to make it out today. Beautiful day. And a uh, great day to be here. Uh, go a little call back here to our kids, Devo. There's always something I notice that I want to give a call back to. And Kenny's little skit with Anderson and Connor. That actually wasn't a written skit. That was actually just Connor's text to Anderson this past week. <laughs> and so, uh, so I think there was something like that. So, Anyway, glad y'all are here. Grab your Bibles or go to the chapter 20 of the story. We're going to be in the book of Esther. Uh, which is just a little bit before halfway through your Bible and before the Psalms, Job and Psalms and all that. And I hope you've been reading along chapter 19 and 20 of our story this last week. So Allison and I, when we first got married in the year 2000, we were able to go on our honeymoon to Montego Bay, Jamaica, to an all-inclusive resort. And if you've ever been to an all-inclusive resort, there's some great things that happen there, right? You get to eat all you want. There was always Jamaican jerk chicken and hamburgers on the beach, 24 hours a day if you wanted them. But one of the things we wanted to do while we were there was to go out and experience the local Montego Bay market, to go to the Jamaican market. So near the end of our time in Montego Bay, we decided to venture outside of the resort. And I don't know what day it was. I think it was the last day or the second to the last day. But we had this little pep talk before we went to go to market. We were young. We were incredibly naive, and we were inexperienced as international travelers. Allison had more experience than I had. I had been to Mexico, she had been to Germany, all kinds of different things. But as far as like Jamaican culture, I had very little experience. So we had this little pep talk with each other, because not only were we inexperienced, we were poor, and we looked at each other and we said, let's make sure we don't spend too much money. We got to make sure we have spending money for the way home. And so the day comes and we go out to the front of the resort and there's all these taxi cabs out there just waiting for suckers like us to walk out the door, right? And so we walk out the door and this guy looks at us and he says, where are you heading? And we say, we're going to market. And he gets a smile on his face. He says, my sister has a booth at the market. I'm going to take care of you. We think, wow, this is wonderful. We're getting taken care of. Must be the Lord's providence watching over us, Right? So we get in the taxi cab and we drive to market. We're holding on white knuckling the whole time because, you know, the traffic laws in Jamaica are much different than the traffic laws in the United States. We thought we were going to die. But as we get to the market, there's nobody there. It's almost basically empty. And he drives us right up to the booth that supposedly belonged to his sister, right? As we're getting out of the taxi, we give each other this knowing nod that says... Let's hold on to our money, sweetheart. And Allison gives me the nod back. And as we walk out of the taxi, I don't know if I dream this or I just in my memory it's kind of in place this way. I see the knowing nod not just between husband and wife, between the brother and sister. And the knowing nod is, we got you some rubes here. Right? Did I mention we were naive? Well, we had made this commitment, we had made this decision, let's not spend too much money, and I don't know what happened in the next few minutes. All of a sudden, time warped, and I'm saying yes to everything. We're buying t-shirts, we're buying buying little knickknacks, they're telling us these things are made 100% in Jamaica, you're turning them over and it says made in China, and we're like, I'll take it, (laughs) Right? The lady says to me, who have never worn a necklace in my life, she's like, Oh, you need this $20 necklace. And I'm like, Okay. (laughs) We got taken for a ride. I mean, not just a ride to the market, we for our pocketbook. On the way back, we've got this bag full of all the things that we bought, T-shirts for people, little knickknacks that we're going to give to people and say, hey, Mom and Dad, thanks for help in the bill for this honeymoon, and they're going to throw it straight in the trash, you know. And we look at each other, and we're like, what happened? Allison's like, well, you're wearing a necklace now. I have no idea what (laughs) happened. In a very short time, we had gone against the things that we had decided. We had made up our mind to be about one thing, but yet we were surprised totally about what happened. I don't know if you've ever been there. Some of you have probably sat through a sales pitch at a, for a timeshare, thinking, I won't buy a timeshare. And then at the end of it, you're like, somehow I bought a timeshare. Or maybe you've let a door-to-door salesman come into your home, and you're like, I don't need a vacuum, I need this vacuum. We all have been there, places in which we thought we had made up our mind, but then we ended up doing something totally different. And maybe today, I'm going to kind of use that as a reversal today, because sometimes we think that way about spiritual disciplines, and especially when we start to think about fasting. It's not like fasting is the best advertisement for Christianity, is it, church family? (laughs) Hey, you want to come to church and learn about Jesus? Sounds great. Hey, we're going to be miserable for three days and not eat food food or drink. Awesome, right? It's not the best advertisement that we have. It's one of those things that it's difficult, and it's hard, and it's trying. And often we've made up our minds, not in a good way, but often in a negative way, that I don't need any more, that what I have with God is enough. So today we're going to talk about the fast that takes place in Esther chapter 4. And I, I know that the way I started this almost sounds like I'm trying to make a sales pitch to you. Like, well, what can I do today to get you in some fasting, right? That's not what I'm trying to do. But I want us to think simply on this question this morning. I really want us to dig into, have we already made up our minds? This is a valid and important question for any follower of Jesus. Have we decided that my relationship with God is good enough? Have we decided that what God has done in me is all in the past? Have we arrived? Have we decided that God is finished with not only us, but with this church family? Have we decided that there's nothing more that God could possibly do? And I want to start with assuring us of this this morning, that God is not finished, church family. God always has more. God has more for you and he has more for us in this church family than we could ever think or imagine. And today what you're going to see is that that more that he has is often connected biblically and historically, and we're not going to jump into a lot of the history, but if you trace revivals in certain areas throughout the world, it is often connected. God's more is connected to periods of fasting and prayer. And so today, we're going to jump into Esther. And we're going to get to see that through hunger and through a guy named Haman, that God raises up another unlikely hero, a Hadassah, an Esther. So let's catch up really quick on the story. You guys probably heard this if you're in class today, but this story is pretty complicated, so we need to catch up. Let's drink from a fire hose for just a second. Esther takes place 100 years after the exile. And it takes place in a city called Susa, which is the capital city of Persia. It's a story of this Jewish community living as exiles still away from their home country. And what they know, just like Daniel... It has two main characters in the story, Mordecai and his cousin or his niece, however you want to read that, Esther. There's one protagonist in the story, a man, a bad guy named Haman. More about him in a little bit. And then there's another kind of major character who works as kind of the fool of the the story, and he is King Xerxes. Esther is the only book in your Bible that's unique in the way that it does not mention the name of God, but yet God is on every page. Many scholars believe that the way it's written is for you to think we have been separated from the things of God, so let's write a story to show that when God is absent, he is really not. Let's dig in. That's the idea. The story opens with this strange telling of Vashti, The queen of Persia getting kicked out after a strange drunken request from her husband, King Xerxes. And then, what happens to replace King Vashti or Vashti is there's a beauty pageant all throughout the realm. Esther, our main character, hides her identity as a Jewish young lady and enters the beauty contest. Xerxes is infatuated with her and she becomes the queen. Now we enter into the time and the story of Haman, the bad guy. We're told that Haman is an Agagite. That is a code word. If you're really paying attention to the Bible, it's really hard to see, but if you're really paying attention, that is a connection way back to the Amalekites, to the Canaanites and King Agag back in 1 Samuel. He's second in command in Persia and he comes up with this scheme where he commands all people to bow and give homage and one person out of the whole kingdom does not and that is the Jewish man, Mordecai, Esther's family member and mentor. Mordecai's rebellion enrages Haman so much that he tricks or works the system to get the king to enact an edict that will kill all the Jews, one day in the future. In response to this, Mordecai tears his clothes. And I think it's important for, before we get to the text today, to try to set our feet in that desperation. And I've tried on this all week. How do I find myself as a privileged person How can I find connection with this? And I I couldn't. Honestly, I couldn't. I tried. How How would I feel to be somebody who was about to be purged out of a land? There was about to be a genocide in a city and in an area to take care of all people that I was related to. I couldn't find a connection. I think the closest thing I could think of is what it must have felt like to be in Europe during the reign of Hitler and the rule of Hitler. Maybe in Poland, in Warsaw in a ghetto, and you're being systematically wiped out. This is a desperate situation. So I wish I could give you a good analogy, but I can't. All I can think of is words like terrifying, unthinkable, gut-wrenching. And Mordecai, when he finds out about this edict, sends not only his grief out, But he sends word to Esther to say, you've got to do something. Beg for mercy for your people. You are in a position. And at first, Esther, in the text, balks at this, right? Because for her to go in front of the king is to put her own life in the hands of this drunken fool, Xerxes. So she's worried. She's nervous. But then we pick it up in chapter 4, 11 through 16. We see what Esther does in light of all this terror around her. Here's what it says. Verse 11, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king, this is Esther speaking back to Mordecai, sending him word, saying this is the danger that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law. If you do it, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. He's trusting in God's will. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And here's where we're going to focus here on these past these couple verses. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Her mind has now changed. She was balking, wasn't sure, and now she says, go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Of course, she's putting all this risk of the people And saying, I'll take that risk on. She's putting her life in the hands of this wishy-washy king, life or death. But as she prepares for it, and where we're going to focus this morning, just real briefly, is she says, let's fast. And I want to ask that question of why would this be the reason? We're going to talk about this later, but it seems like her decision has already been made. I'm going to go see the king, but let's fast anyway. So let's ask this question of ourselves. Why is fasting important? Well, by definition, here's what fasting is, right? <clears throat> if you've been following along our Devo guide, you know this. Fasting is abstaining from food to grow deeper with God. Or as we've been saying from, for, for the last few weeks, fasting is letting go of something to get taken hold of by God. And for the Christian, the answer of why do we fast is simple. It's because Jesus taught it and he modeled it. There's really no other reason we need. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) Okay, I'm good. Maybe. There's really no other reason other than Jesus did it, right? In Matthew 6, 16, what's he say? When you fast. It's what Coleman just read. Not if, but when. Not maybe, but in your life as a Christian, you will be a person of prayer and giving and fasting. And then, of course, what we also see in Jesus' life is the practice of it. In Luke 4, we know that Jesus goes out into the desert and he fasts for 40 days. But when he comes back, I want to notice this because here's where we get our answer for why we fast. And Jesus' answer for why he fasts is the same answer for what Esther is doing when she calls on people to fast. Luke 4.14 answers this for us. After 40 days, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. What Esther and Jesus have in common is that they fast because there is power in fasting. Fasting is not a something that I do. It is something that is done. It is a practice of putting myself in a submitted place so that the Lord can do his best. It is the practice of declaring God is not done. There is growth, there is maturing, there is outreach, there is breakthrough, there is revival. There is a power of the spirit yet to be revealed and we are going to fast to see it. It is the realization in the individual's life, I need God. Fasting gets us out of the way So that God can get in the way. There's power in it. And I want to see what Esther does. Let's go back to that story. I wanted to focus on Jesus just so we would couch this. But it's no different Jesus' reason for fasting than Esther's. And what Jesus and Esther both do is one of the reasons they fast is not only the power of the spirit. But we know this, there is a power in self-denial. There's a power behind us giving up the things that fulfill us. Again, back to the words of Jesus. I'm a Christian, can't keep away from them, right? He says this. He says to his disciples. I got to cough again, sorry. (coughs) All right. He says to his disciples. But actually getting y'all's attention. Not what I'm preaching is getting your attention. My coughing is getting... You guys want to just hear me cough for 10 more minutes? Anyway, all right. Here we go. Here's what he says. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Say it with me. Deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will do what? They'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? See, there's this power in denial, not in denying the things that are true, but in denying ourselves a fulfillment. And what a teaching for a world in which we live in, right? Our entire economy in the United States is built on one thing, right? You guys know what the economy is built on? You capitalists out there, Ayn Rand, you're going to get mad at me right here. All right. Our our economy is built on self-fulfillment and greed, right? And so in a world that's all about self-fulfillment, fasting comes along and says, I don't have to have that. Self-fulfillment is anti-kingdom of God. What's Jesus say? Whoever wants to be a disciple will practice self-denial. So fasting teaches us to say no and to practice realizing what we think we depend on so that we can take hold of the one we actually depend on. So there's power in denial. But second, there's power in community. I love that little detail in the text in verse 16. I think on this for this, this week a lot, that Esther calls on the people to fast for three days and three nights. No food, no drink. And if she dies, she dies. But she's already made up her mind to go to the king. This fasting wasn't about, will I go to the king? It's fasting because we need a community together for strength to continue with the decision she's already made. It's the idea that God has more. That God is doing something. Fasting communally brings people together to realize God is doing more. It may be that you've made promises to God, decisions for God, but you haven't followed through on them. And fasting in community helps us because it gets rid of the fluff and puts our eyes back where they are meant to be. You can think about it this way. Here's some recent studies that I think are so interesting. And these are individual studies, but I want us to think about these communally. This is incredible stuff. This is is from the Lifeway research on just Bible readers. This came out in 2023, just last year. Uh, So, people who read their Bible four times a week or more, right? Here's what happens in their life they're 407% more likely to memorize Scripture. That one's kind of duh, because if you don't read your Bible very often, you're not going to memorize Scripture, right? Well, I thought it would, I, I, I took a nap with it on my face, thought it would. Osmosis would happen, right? That's how I used to study for tests in college. If I fall asleep with this accounting book on my face, I'll learn accounting. It didn't work. That's why I had so many C's in accounting, right? <laughs> Anybody else with me? Try the osmosis method. Uh, 400%, 407% more likely. You're 228% more likely to share your faith if you're in scripture four times a week. And you're 59% less likely to struggle with pornography if you're in scripture, A few more. These are so interesting. People who read Scripture four times a week are 30% less likely to be lonely. They're 68% less likely to say they're spiritually stagnant. And they're 230% more likely to be in some sort of a discipleship relationship, either receiving discipleship or giving discipleship. Now, those are stats for individuals. But I only bring those before you because imagine if what would happen exponentially... The growth to those stats would happen if 50% of a church is in the Bible four times a day. Or say 80% of our church gets serious about spiritual disciplines and fasting and prayer and connecting with each other. Those things don't just go up a little, they explode, right? That's the power of community. That's what Esther's doing. Her mind is already made up but she knows that there's power in togetherness. Together, I'm better. Together, you're better. Together, we're better. Fasting is not just an individual endeavor. Don't misread Jesus. Yes, Jesus in Matthew 6 says when you fast, don't don't look somber and don't go showing it off, but that does not mean that fasting cannot be done in community. There's as many examples of communal fasts in scripture, as there is individual fast. What Jesus is warning against is saying, hey everybody, I'm fasting, I'm, more, I'm better than you. That's what he's warning against. He's not warning against, hey, let's fast together because I want to help seek God and I want you to help me seek God. You see the difference? So don't make that mistake. And finally, there is a power in fasting because it unleashes the power of listening. I love what's in verse 14. This most famous of all passages from Esther where Mordecai says, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's household will perish. And then there's that famous line, but who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Fasting opens us up in a world of noise to be like Esther and listen. These words that she took to heart became her life's desire. She listened to her cousin Mordecai. This could be your time, Esther. And what fasting does is turns down all that noise so that we can hear the still and quiet voice of God. Fasting is putting on headphones, noise-canceling headphones, so that we can go, God, what do you want? So that we can discover that there is more. To remember that God is not done. That the Holy Spirit still has power behind him. That the Holy Spirit is still active and living and working. That the Holy Spirit still wants to move and act. That God is still calling the lost sheep back to him. And so I want to just close with this one thing. Because fasting is about what we behold. But there's a plain truth that we've got to all remember. What you behold is what you become. If you hold on to whatever it is, whatever you hold the most in your life is eventually what you become. If you hold on to money, if you behold money as your goal in life, you know what you become? You become fearful and greedy. Well, it's not true in my life. Yeah, it is. No, you're not special. You didn't get around that. That's been going on for thousands of years, right? Well, I'm not, uh, I, I will be fine. No, no, if you behold money, right, you will become fearful and greedy. If you behold sex as the highest aim of your life, you'll become perverted. That's what will happen to you. If you hold your hurts and your wrongs done to you as the one thing that matters, how dare anybody insult me, what will you become? you'll become angry and bitter because people are going to disappoint you. If you hold other people's sins, and that's all you can behold is see everybody else is wrong, what do you become? You become judgmental. But if you behold Jesus, if we fix our eyes on Him, and that's what fasting does, what you behold is what you become, then you will become like Jesus. That's it. I know that's a hard truth for us to accept. It's a hard thing for us to think about. But if what we behold is what we become. And as a church, we are in the middle. A little more than the middle now. We're asking you this week to abstain from one meal. 24 hours of meals. Two meals between now and Wednesday. And it's not because we're trying to say, look at us, world. It's because we know I hope we know this. And I'll confess to y'all that I probably have looked in way too many places for answers for how to do this at church or for that to do. How do we reach a lost? How do we reach the nuns? How do we reach the unchurched in this area? How do we connect with our Hispanic community? How do we connect with the lost? How do we connect with those who Know Jesus, but don't follow Jesus. I think about all kinds of strategy on that. And often, I'll confess to you, church family, I often end up looking for strategy. And the one thing we actually need to do is behold God. And he's staring me in the face. And I have to put that last. You with me? And I confess that to you. And I want to repent of that. Because the answer to church and to a healthy church is not this or that. It's the Lord. It's wanting God. It's an increase in our desire for Jesus. What we behold is what we become. And I hope you're excited this week because most of all, what I want you to know is you're going through the Devo Guide this week. Is you're spending some time uh, maybe giving up some habits again, maybe, or, or a meal this week. And you're excited about Becky's breakfast Wednesday night. You guys get our little play on words. We're going to break our fast with breakfast. Yeah, we're very creative, right? But we're going to do that Wednesday, and I'm excited. I'm already excited about Brenner Wednesday night, right? I'm excited about it. But most of all, what we want to do is over the next few days is to declare, I want to be in God's presence because God is not done with his promises, God is not finished. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with us. He's not finished with this church. There is more. Somebody once told me that there is no way that a church in Canadian Texas can ever get over averaging 300 people. I don't believe that. You know why I don't believe that? Because we serve a God of the impossible. Somebody once told me too, there's no way you could have more than 50 baptisms in a year at a church. Not in this area because people don't want Jesus. I don't believe that. Because we serve a God of the impossible. And when we put ourselves in his place, in his presence, God's not finished. So whatever you need today, if you felt like God is finished with you, he's not. That is good news. Let's behold him so that we can become like his son, Jesus. Let's stand together. Let's sing.